The theme of the book of Hebrews is better. The purpose of the writing was to encourage the Hebrew Christians that what they had in Jesus Christ, what they had in the New Covenant, is better than the system of the worship which they participated in in the synagogue. And so the encouragement was for them to resist the temptation to retreat back. Actually, that's a redundancy. To retreat into the system of which they grew up in, the system of which they had a comfort level, the system really for many of their friends and family members. To avoid the persecution, to avoid the, to, be in the, uh, to be held at arm's length, to reestablish some of those relationships, to avoid some of the trials of which they were presently engaged Jesus is better. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Covenant, the priesthood, whatever the case might be, the Old Testament pointed to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We now have a group of individuals who grew up in that system. They have now recognized Jesus as the Messiah. They placed their faith and confidence in Him. And now the the the... They need the encouragement. It's not as easy as perhaps as what they were hoping. And they needed someone to come alongside them and say, you got to keep at it. you got to stay with it. And let's face it, all of us from time to time need someone to come alongside and say, you're doing okay. It, it, you just stick with it. This too shall pass. We have all kinds of little phrases we may throw out there at people to, to, to try to help them through, to let them know that this is not the end of life. This is just a part of where you are right now. It's going to be okay. Yes, it may be hard for a while, but it's going to get better. Jesus is better. Chapter 1 told us that Jesus is a better revelator Chapter 1 told us that Jesus has given to us a more thorough, a better revelation than that which was presented to us even on behalf of angels through the mediation of the Old Covenant. That which was given to us by the Old Testament prophets. God has spoken in a variety of ways, but in these last days, He has communicated through His own Son the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore he comes to him and he says, Hear him, which is what, class? The divine articulation. They were told to follow him. Jesus is the divine architect. They were told to imitate him. Jesus is the divine adjective. They were told to trust him. Jesus is the divine atonement. They were told to go to him. Jesus is the divine Advocate. Very good. And I want to just continue to drive those home because sometimes we do forget. I was reading the other day about an, uh, uh, a couple of older couples were together. The, the men were out in the living room. The women were out in the kitchen as they, they typically are. And, and then the one older gentleman turned to the other and said, Hey, we went to a great restaurant. It's a new restaurant in town. 
you will really enjoy it. I would wholly recommend it. And the other guy says, well, what was the name of it? And he sat there for a second and he looked at me. He says, what's the, what's the name of that flower that, uh, that, 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 that many times are, are given as, as a given? It's got thorns on it. He said, a rose? Yeah, a rose. So he turned, hey, Rose, what was the name of that restaurant that we were... Sometimes we need to be reminded. And so we're going to continue to drive this home, and, and hopefully those five points will be yours and uh, be solidified in your thinking. We have seen the incomparable superiority of the Lord Jesus to angels to all the heavenly host. But a natural objection, because we've got to put ourselves back within the framework here of the readers of this particular letter. And so we put ourselves back in there. Who are they? They're saved Jews. That they grew up in a system where angels were elevated. And now they're looking at this whole process. That they, they know what they learned about angels, that they have a reference point for angels, and now they, they know they're believers in, in, in the Messiah, and, but now a, a natural objection. If Jesus is really better than angels, and again, remember their frame of reference, if Jesus is really better than angels, how... And why did he become man? If Jesus is really better than angels, why did he die? How is it that these sufferings and these sorrows and his very death itself, how is that consistent with him and the glories as they understand the Messiah? And so you could, I hope you can see that there would be a, a, the potential for a, a stumbling block in their framework and within their, with, their, with their understanding. Yet Jesus is the Messiah, we understand that, but if you now say he's better than angels, I, I'm having a hard time putting those two pieces together. We read Psalm 8 this morning. What is man that thou art mindful of him? You can imagine the songwriter, the shepherd, out there on the hillside, looking up into the heavens, taking in the vastness of all that was to be seen, and he looks at his own life with the question, why in the world are you paying any attention to me? You have all of this. To think right about God, to think right about man, we need an accurate understanding of the gospel. To, to look at the heavens as the idolater would look at them, they would see that man is inferior to birds and beasts and creeping things. To the materialist, man is the product of natural forces which will also one day pass away. What is man? Well, that's the framework of which the writer to Hebrews uses in order to explain to us a little bit about what's taking place, why Jesus became man. Now, please note, Jesus is not even mentioned until verse 9, the first time in the book that he is mentioned. By name, he's referred to as the Son, to be sure, in chapter 1. 
but the first time the word name Jesus is used in verse 9 of chapter 2. So what does the writer do? So the, so the writer has an argument, and he needs to lay out this argument, and that's what we're trying to do here. And so we're looking at verses 5 through 9 here this morning. First of all, we're going to look at man's destiny. Verse 5, man's destiny. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? And so again, he's going back and he's talking about angels and putting angels in comparison with, with, with where man is. I like even the amplified uh, translation of this. For it was not to angels that God subjected the habitable world of the future of which we are speaking. And so he comes here, he says, for unto angels. In fact, it's an emphasis that he places there, and it's very emphatic, not for angels hath he put in subjection the world uh, to come. It's an absolute negative. He says it's, it's not about angels here. He's emphasizing that in no way are angels to be in authority over the world to come. So please understand, there is a world to come. So if you run into your amillennialist someplace, you know, let them know, no, there is yet a world to come. That means this one's got to go because there's yet one to come. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come. And again, the, world subject, the word subjection there is a military term. You just line up according to rank. So there's a, there's a system here which God is, is using. Uh, God is the one who appoints that and, and establishes that. And we, we use the word habitable world. The word world here, many times you're familiar enough with the, with the word cosmos. Most of the time that's the word of which we, we, uh, we, we use for God so love the world, for God so love the cosmos. It simply means an orderly arrangement of things. It's where we get the word cosmetology. It's, uh, uh, but that's not the word which he's using here. It's not the orderly arrangement of things. It's a word which also means house. It's an inhabited system, an inhabited world here that, that, he is re- that he's referring to. For not to the angels hath he put in subjection the world to come. And so there's this habitable world, there's one that's yet coming of which he is speaking of. And so he's telling him, man's destiny is to one day rule that inhabited world. It's a future destination. It's the millennial kingdom. And so he's jumping ahead here, and he's again putting angels in their place. For unto the angels... So when this, this new world comes, it's going to be inhabited by people, but angels are not going to be in charge there. Ultimately, it's going to be man who's going to have that role to play as man will rule with the Lord Jesus Christ. So God never promised to subject the world to come to angels. In the coming world of perfection, Angels will not be sovereign. Yet what we do know is angels rule over man presently. 
and any rule over man presently is only temporary because one day the rules are going to be reversed. There is another world to come. That means this one has to go. Who rules this present world? Spiritual forces. Who is the prince of this world? Satan. But not in the world to come. Holy angels have a place of sovereignty. We understand. Go to the book of Daniel. And uh, Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 12. It talks about a, a, an angel coming to him and, and talking about the spiritual forces which are at work out there in the, in, in the, in the never, in, in, in an area that we don't understand, an area we don't see. We know from Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these principalities, these forces in high places. And so man's destiny ultimately one day is to rule this world yet to come. There's going to be people there. It's going to be inhabited. There's going to be people there. But it's not going to be angels who are ruling that. Ultimately, it's going to be man. So man's designation, look at verse 6. But one in a certain place... That's an interesting way of quoting the Old Testament. Isn't it? Some people look at it and say, well, didn't he know where he was writing from? Yes, he knew where he was writing from because he goes on and quotes it. In fact, he quotes it verbatim from the Septuagint, which is his practice here, the writer's practice throughout the book of Hebrews. The Hebrew translation of the Old Testament. So he, so he knew where he was writing from, but I think the emphasis there, and we mentioned it before, uh, even as we don't have the um, identity of the writer here for the book of Hebrews, I think the writer wants us to go back and say, God is the author of Scripture. It, don't get hung up with who physically wrote it. Go back to understanding God is the one that used these individuals to write it, even including these words here. But one in a certain place testify. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. This is man's designation. Again, Philip's translation. But someone has said, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? Man appears here to be the most insignificant in comparison to heavens. When you read Psalm 8, when you look here at verses 6 and 7. But yet God does care for him. And again, the word here for man is anthropos, so it's not just a, a generic or the... Uh, uh, Genetic man, it's, it's man, men, and women here. What is man that thou dost magnify him, and that thou art concerned about him, that thou dost examine him every morning and, and try him every moment? That's the, the, the thought here. Someone has sarcastically said that man is a rash on the epidermis of, the, of a minor planet. Now, I mean, the man is, when you look at who he is and the vastness here, you begin to wonder. But again, who are we talking about? Verse 6, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? If you go back and pick up some commentaries, you're going to see a, a difference of opinion. That once it gets to the son of man, people say, well, he's talking about Jesus here. He's talking about the Messiah here. And indeed, in Luke chapter, in the book, Gospel of Luke, Luke uses that title 
commonly referring to himself. But here it's a, the parallelism of which you have in the Old Testament uh, uh, poetic literature, what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? There's a parallelism here. And so he's still talking about man. So don't jump here to the son of man and say, well, that must be Jesus. No, we're still talking about you. We're still talking about man as we know man is. In fact, uh, the word Ezekiel, or in the book of Ezekiel, he refers to himself as the son of man almost 90 times. So it's, so it's a common title, and it's a common usage here within the Jewish framework, within Jewish literature. As Son of Man is simply a Semitic way of saying human being. So, so don't jump. Keep man here in the focus. When you read Psalm 8, you're talking about man. When you're reading Hebrews chapter 2 here, we're just talking about man. He says that, the Son of Man, that thou visitest him. It's the idea of relieving stress. You're familiar with Matthew chapter 25. A couple places when Jesus was uh, uh, admonishing people and, and, and providing a, a sense of even judgment upon them. Uh, uh, yeah, I was in prison that you didn't come to visit me. Yeah, I was needy, but you didn't come to, to visit me. The, the, it's the same word. It's the idea of to come to relieve some stress, distress to relieve some sickness or, or bondage. This idea is simply visiting the sick here. And so, here the Son of the, 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 not to just that, that God comes, but that God comes in order to, to relieve you. God not only has you in His mind, but he, He's interested in showing you good. Then verse 7. Again, the Amplified puts it this way, For some little time you have ranked man lower and inferior to the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your, of your hands. And so now he begins to establish where man is within this system with angels. That for a little while thou hast made him lower than the angels, yet thou, thou crownest him with glory and honor and to set him over the works of thy hands. What's he talking about? When he's talking about a little lower here, there's, there's two possibilities, and, and the word can be used a couple of different ways. could be inferior in rank, or could be uh, just simply the fact that uh, inferior for a little time. John the Baptist used it in John chapter 3, where he says, uh, he must increase, I must decrease. So there he's talking about inferior in rank. But yet, in this particular context, I think it's better to understand this for, for a little time. For a little time you have ranked man lower than the angels. And yet you crowned him. Literally meant to adorn, adorn him with, a, with an honorary wreath which served as, as the crown of the victor in the, in the Greek public games. But the psalmist here refers to God's purpose in creating man with such a destiny as mastery over nature and made such that he was granted the, the crown or the crown of honor. See, when God made Adam, he made Adam pure and he made him innocent. He gave him honor. He gave him glory. 
We look at Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 to 28 when it says he, he created man, he say he created man that he might rule as a, the vice regent over the, over the earth. The word rule is the word dominion. He gave him dominion to tread down, to chubdigate, subjugate, to rule. And so when he created him, thou crownest him with glory and honor. You sat him over the work of your hands. He had that position. Man had that glorified, honorable position that God had given to him. In fact, it says, it says particularly it says, he's, thou didst set him, or you appointed him. You put him in charge. God made man, and man was made to master the natural world. Spurgeon put it this way, God made him to be the vice regent on earth. And he would still hold that position were it not that since he has rebelled against his own sovereign, even the beasts of the field take liberty to be rebellious against him. Man is not now in his original estate, and therefore he rules not now. And we see many men who are very far from being royal beings, for they are mean and groveling. And that really brings us to the next point of man's detour. And so here's the writer. He's, he's laying out the framework here. You know, really, uh, uh, there's a coming a time where man is going to be reestablished here over the angels. That time is not now. Because for a little while you've made him lower than the angels, though thou crownest him, though, though he had this particular role by the, uh, by the very creative act of you that you appointed him over to have dominion over these things. You set him over the work of your hands. Verse 8, thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. Again, that's part of his dominion rule. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. So he's still talking about man. He's still talking about the, the role which man had to play as ruler over this. He put all things in subjection under his feet. Yet we see not all things put under What happened? Well, what caused the, the, the problem here? Well, what happened that altered the designated course? What happened to alter the, the appointment that God had given to man? Well, that last phrase in verse 8, but now. It's a very sad note. Man, man had this, this, this tremendous position, this glorified position. Uh, he was crowned for it, but now. But yet there's also a hopeful note in here where it says, not yet. But now we see not yet all things put under him. What happened was sin. Sin entered in. Man had position. Man had his prestige. Man had his power, but he wanted more. He wanted to be like God. And so when Adam sinned, he handed the scepter which God had given to him, God had appointed unto him, and he handed it over to Satan. Man yielded over his position as ruler, and now he's given it to Satan himself, who is now the God of the world system, and whose throne is again on earth. Revelation 2 verse 13. So the implication here is that God has allowed Satan to rule in this present world 
But again, his end is also in sight. The prince of the earth, the system of this world is Satan. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Man had been given the position. He yielded it over. Satan is now the authority upon this earth. He is now the, the God of this world. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And so these principalities are ruling, but again, it's only temporary. It is a stopgap, if you will. Man had the position, yielded over to Satan. Satan is called the usurper. What does the word usurper mean? simply means he moved in and took what wasn't his. And so it wasn't just the, 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 the sin that entered into the world. When, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, it was uh, Adam yielding over the, the position that God had given to him. He was no longer in a position of, of dominion. He's now in a position where there's all this conflict, and that which he was to have dominion over is now working against him. So in, in to sum up, basically Satan now rules this cursed planet Earth. He is the prince or ruler of the power of the air. He has authority over all unregenerate men and women. When God created man and woman, the record reads thus, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28 Rule, have dominion over. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was king. But he not only lost his soul, he also lost his crown, representing his rule over this earth. Adam's sin brought the curse on creation. These, these docile creatures out there now became ferocious. The ground began to bring forth thorns and thistles. But we're, we title this man's recovery. This is God's recovery program, man's recovery program here. Not 12 step, it comes through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he, he lays out here, again, going back to the objection, why did Jesus become man? Verse 9, but... We see Jesus. Here's man's deliverance. Again, I'm going to quote the Amplified. But we are able to see Jesus, who is ranked lower than the angels for a little while, crowned with glory and honor because of his having suffered death, in order that by the grace of God he might experience death for every individual person. But... We see Jesus, but the Lord Jesus Christ, through the blood of his cross, has regained for man the dominion over this earth. And so Jesus is rightly referred to as the last Adam or the second Adam. The second Adam now has restored. The second Adam has now reclaimed everything that the first Adam has lost. And if you remember when we studied our our, the book of Revelation, we had the, 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 the book that, that, that needed to be open, and we just declared that that book was the, the, the deed to this earth. 
this deed to this created order, and now Jesus is opening it, and now he's going through the, 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 the design and what was necessary in order to reclaim all of it, and hence we have the bold judgments, the trumpet judgments, the seal, the seal trumpet and bold judgments. And that, that's the process which Jesus had to use in order to reclaim this. That the, that the second Adam now is using in order to bring judgment upon this particular world and ultimately to bring in a, another one which man will rule. So Jesus has regained this dominion. And in that millennial kingdom, he will, Satan will be dethroned. And Jesus will rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And the saved of the human race will be associated with him in his reign. Believers will rule and reign with him. And again, so going back to angels. Thus the angels would not, will not administer the millennial kingdom. But man in the person of the Son of Man, person of the Lord Jesus, and those of the human race saved by His precious blood, they will rule. What was necessary, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Again, for a little while. Lower than the angels for the suffering of death. He's now crowned with glory and honor because of that suffering and death that he may by the grace of God should taste death for every man. That word of taste is not just nibbling at it, fully consumed. That death fully took him in that regard. He To partake fully is the idea. He fully experienced what death was. So Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. His exaltation, his preeminence over the angels was won through his humiliation and death, all done because of grace, which is very, very costly. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. And when you read this passage, again, you're just fascinated by God's grace. Man had the position. He lost it. God saw fit to provide the Lord Jesus Christ who was made as man, suffered as man, even as a servant unto death to restore everything that the original man has lost. See, so to the original reader of this letter, the objection is answered. See, if Jesus is greater than angels, why did he become man? If Jesus is greater than angels, why did he die? Because we needed a Savior. Because we needed someone to reclaim man's rightful position. So that in this new habitable, inhabitable world, we will rule. We will again have everything which was lost in Genesis chapter 3. Now he's going to go on, and really the section goes down through you know, around verse 15 or so. 
but I wanted to divide it up. I, I, I wanted to, to break this down so we have a real, I, hopefully a good solid understanding of what the writer is doing here. And, and why he goes from uh, verse 14 really, and then he has this interruption in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 2, where he, where he gives forth this warning, and then he jumps right back into angels again. Angels are ministering spirits, but it wasn't to the angels that he put in subjection the world to come. And so, so that's the flow of the text of what he's trying to gather here. My goal this morning is for us to again stand in amazement at God's grace of what God has done on our behalf, what Jesus has done on our behalf, and the tremendous suffering that again we may rule with We have much to look forward to, much to anticipate. To be once again in a position that Adam had in the early chapters of the book of Genesis. To have that type of peace, that type of tranquility, that type of a, of a, a culture that type of society, that type of environment, one day will be ours because of who Jesus is. Heavenly Father, we're praying your blessing upon the reading and the understanding of the Scripture to us this morning. Praying, O oh God, that you might help us once again be thrilled with what you have planned. We're humbled with the reality with where we are today. But again, it helps us to understand our circumstance in life. It helps us to understand disease and sickness and death. It helps us to understand the, the authority of the uh, Satan and, and his followers within this world system. It helps us to understand that even though the the final victory has been realized. The battle still rages. And I pray, O oh God, that when we go to prayer, and we recognize that in that process we are wrestling against spiritual wickedness in high places. Go over talking about angels in, in, in one of our classes there this morning, and, 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 and referred to Second Kings chapter six and. How Elisha just prayed, oh God, open the eyes of my servant that he might see what's around us. Lord, it would be marvelous for us to be able to see the heavenly host gathered around this church. But Lord, we would be awestruck to recognize the spiritual wickedness in high places around the community of London. So, Lord, you haven't called us to have that type of physical vision. But, Lord, we know it's real. We do rejoice with our Savior. And with the reality that one day all of these things will be restored in its proper order. So, Lord, again, we see another reason why Jesus came, explained from another different perspective to us another group of beloved followers of Jesus.
followers, which one day we will mingle with in the glories of eternity. All because of Jesus. Amen.